The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Alumni Ventures. Invest with confidence. Discover the power of venture investing with Alumni Ventures, America's largest venture firm for individual investors. Learn more at av.vc. LinkedIn presents. I think if you if you grow up with any kind of um, sort of headwind or any any sort of challenge, I think that it ends up creating some kind of motivation. And so then for me, if I could see that that my dad was, let's say, challenged to um, sort of, you know, realize his own, you know, full potential because of some of the challenges he had, then I think as his son, I would be motivated to to use the capabilities I have, sort of the lack of impediments and realize my full potential. And so the manifestation of that could be very positive, very productive, sort of, you know, acting as a positive role model, being very approachable, being a, a consistent manager, or it could motivate you to sort of try to become sort of like an outsized presence or an outsized success and do it on like an almost overly accelerated time frame because you're putting pressure on yourself to realize your own full potential. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who've dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope work will change in the future. There's no doubt people are becoming more open about mental health in the workplace but it's happening at a different pace everywhere. And the truth is, that change, the openness to share about mental health, it has to come from within. Today's guest has succeeded with a great career as a leader in a giant tech company. But over time, Danny Bernstein realized he wasn't really succeeding at being a manager. In fact, in his own words, he was being kind of a jerk. And when he was ready to face his own mental health, when he put into context how his family history and his own anxiety motivated his incredible drive to success, he started noticing that his abilities as a manager were also improving. Danny spent nine years at Google and recently left that position to head to another tech giant, Microsoft. He's worked on the business side, developing partnerships and products that so many of us use, from Google Search to Maps to Chrome. Really impressive, achievery kind of stuff. So I started by asking him a bit more about what his work means to him. What does it feel like when you've helped create something that is so ubiquitous and like you're just driving in the car and someone's using a product you worked on and you're like, oh my God, that's my work. <laughs> um, there, there's a certain sort of feeling of, of a personal connection or vulnerability to it. Like mm-hmm. if, if I'm working on something and it, it doesn't work properly, I actually feel like, like, per, like I personally let down that individual, <laughs> um, and, and I try to, you know, debug it, um, myself or, or try to figure that out. So it, it, it from that standpoint, it, it, it can be a, a quite humbling when things sometimes don't work, uh, when they do, it's, it's of course very satisfying and you feel like you're solving a real problem for someone, helping them become more productive. Um, but, it, but what's interesting about working at a place like Google is that because our products are used by so many people, very often we have sort of false positives in the product. Like we can launch something in search and 50 million people can use it immediately, but that doesn't actually necessarily mean that it's successful or meeting user needs. So there's quite a bit of complexity and kind of understanding like 
really what is working and what isn't and, and how to sort of read the signals and how to read the data. But I think that's, that's part of the, part of the fun and part of the challenge. So looking at this perch where you have such a, an impact, like, is this the kind of successful path that you, when you were a kid or a teenager, you thought you'd be on? I wouldn't say so. Um, my dad was a school psychologist in uh, a school district in the Bay Area. He had the same job for over 35 years. And my mom was a, a pharmacist. She was a kind of a dynamic pharmacist that she did different things with media on occasion. Um, but I didn't have in my life, like in my immediate circle, uh, my parents, friends, etc., any sort of role models that sort of followed a business trajectory. And so I didn't really know what that looked like. And, and I had to navigate a lot of that sort of on my own with relationships that I built. So I wouldn't say that I ever had a thought where I was like, this is where I want to be in 15 years. And these are the really rational steps to work backward from that. It's sort of been kind of learning as I go, um, sometimes, you know, falling flat on my face, sometimes being able to get inputs from mentors, but, but very often kind of trying to figure it out, you know, myself, because I, I wouldn't say that I was someone, unlike a lot of my peers who had parents who, who worked in the private sector or who worked in business. So when we talked in our sort of pre-interview, you talked about how you used to be a quote terror as a manager, <laughs> how, and what was the feedback so let me just back up and say that I, I want this show to be very instructive for people who, you know, we're, we're very pro-anxiety on this show and we want people to feel their anxiety as, as sometimes a leadership strength. But I think that sometimes when you have big feelings and when you feel anxiety and imposter syndrome, you can take it out on other people, right? And so this really piqued my interest when you said that, that you used to be as a terror as a manager. Um, I'm curious, what did that look like? Yeah. And, and I wouldn't say that I'm completely over that hump yet. I'll, I'll be honest. There, there are some <laughs> moments where, where I have a bit of a, an energy level that, that I can't necessarily temper. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think that, that that's, that's accurate. I, I think I, I could sort of, sort of call myself a bit of a Tasmanian devil at times. And, you know, what are the inputs and what are the outputs? I mean, the inputs to that are when you sort of operate with a bit of anxiety in a corporate environment how that spills over is that you're you're concentrating on certain interactions and really trying to have an outsized impact on those interactions. And so as a result, you might over-prepare, over-engineer, over-analyze. Um, some great feedback I received is that not letting um, great be the enemy of good. Hmm. We, have a, we have a saying within, within Google that I think is now kind of spread throughout technology, sort of the 80-20 of, of something, sort of what is the... 80% effort that, that might sort of get you where you're going versus sort of that last 20. And there are different ways to interpret that statement. It's used in different ways. But absolutely, I, I think that I would, I would let some of my anxiety or some of my um, sort of sense of urgency spill out. Mm. Would you yell? How would, it, how would it show? No, no, not like, really. Like what not. are your most common go-tos? I, I think there are a couple things. One is that at a place like Google – the executive reviews that you go into, let's say you're working on a, a new strategy, a new partnership, a new product. Um, the executive reviews are very direct communication environments. There, there's a lot of candor and there's a lot of sort of very direct communication. And, and I think for the first several years of my time at Google, my approach to preparing my team for those discussions would almost be like me role playing the, the scenario that they were about to go into. So I would actually like play the part of the 
of, of the executive that they were going to meet. But I, but I would do it in a way that wasn't super, as conscious as it needed to be. Like I wouldn't say, hey, I'm about to uh, simulate some of the behaviors and some of the questions you'll receive, but it's not personal. I'm in your corner. I wouldn't mm. say those things. I wasn't conscious necessarily that I was doing it. I was just sort of letting that behavior sort of roll down a hill and then, and then assuming that character. And I did that for years and I would get negative feedback on it, like universally, <laughs> but I was very stubborn about it because I was saying, no, I'm just trying to prepare you. No, no, I'm just trying to prepare you. And it was absolutely the wrong approach. And it took me a very long time to sort of let go of that approach and to realize that what I actually should be doing is boosting people's confidence in those smaller discussions and helping mm. improve psychological safety in those discussions. So then when they go into those more challenging reviews, they're prepared, but they're confident. And, yeah. and so that was like one that I, that I clearly have not done a great job of. Um, the second one is that I would very often, when we were preparing for certain discussions, be absolutely be sort of pushing to over-prepare. And, and sort of holding myself and the team to sort of this unrealistic standard. And, and as a result, people would be sort of looking at me like, you know, or haven't we reached a point of diminishing returns on this? Um, like, what new insights are we really gleaning? And there's a concept of resiliency when it comes to brainstorming and, and creative thought. So it's really hard to walk the fine line between what is a, a sort of a resilient process or a thorough process between one where you sort of turn into a terror as a manager. And I would continually mm -hmm. not get that right. The, the third one is that as a manager, if you have, let's say, uh, 10 meetings a day or 50 to 75 meetings a week, which is, for me is pretty typical. If I have one of those meetings, which I show up and I have a hard edge, I'm asking pointed questions, I'm uh, reducing psychological safety based on my approach, that one discussion is the one that people remember. It's the one that goes viral. It's not the 49 other positive conversations or ones where I was creating a supportive environment. And, and for me, for a long time, the average was probably not 49 out of 50 positive interactions, probably like more like nine times out of 10. And if you look at it, it's sort of like, wow, Danny, 90% of your interactions were like positive and supportive. And I'm like, yeah, that's fine. But I, but I would say that the, the leaders that I've come to really admire and, and have gotten to know sort of at a deeper level, they're at like 100 out of 100. They, and, and, they, and they hold themselves to like a, a very high standard, not in such a way that like bleeds out as them being like a terror to their teams, but really hold themselves to a high sort of character standard. So they are remarkably consistent in how they show up. And I was not. I was a little too, I like to say, I was a little too unpredictable, a little too inconsistent. And so even if it was 90% of the interactions I was showing up in sort of a productive and supportive way, I would miss that one. And it was hugely detrimental. And I'm only now beginning to become more conscious of how critical those sorts of behaviors are as a manager. I feel like I feel like part of me wants to say, give yourself a break. One interaction is, I mean, that's 10%. Like, is that just your perfectionism speaking? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's a really reasonable thing to say, but I'm, I'm maybe I'll offer a bit of a pro provocative, you know, sort of counterpoint, which is I think that in today's day and age, 
where we're working from home, where we're dealing with sort of one pandemic uncertainty to the next, uh, where, you know, sort of challenges with mental health are the norm, challenges with processing sort of externalities is the norm. I would say that the modern manager has to be remarkably consistent and remarkably mm. predictable. And, and that may be even more valuable than the sort of image that maybe we previously had of managers of sort of like this, you know, creative type who, who could be a little enigmatic, who could be a little unpredictable, but they're sort of brilliant, sort of papered over that. I maybe operated with a bit of that as a core value for a long time. And I've really come full circle to realize that that was misguided. And so I absolutely hear what you're saying. Yeah, maybe this is just another perfectionist, perfectionist instinct. But if that's maybe where I'm channeling my anxious energy towards like having consistent, supportive interactions with my team, I actually think that's probably a good use of my energy. I love that. It reminds me of the Buddhist concept of right effort or appropriate effort, right? Where, mm. um, you know, you really need to figure out if the strings are either too tight or too loose, the sound is not going to be beautiful. And so the strings have to be tuned correctly and neither too tight nor too loose, right? And so the consistency in the manager is not always about driving your team to produce the best results all the time. Right. It's right. about showing up for them in a way that they can trust you and come to lean on you. Yeah, it's a big one. And I, the other thing I've thought about sort of related to that, I think it's a really wonderful point and a great analogy is very often as managers, we have to deliver challenging feedback or we just have to provide constructive criticism or input. And the way that I come to think about that is that and all of those interactions you could put on a continuum of, let's say, one to 10. And, and 10 being an individual who is like absolutely doing the, the wrongest possible thing in a corporate environment. But the average, let's say, misstep in a corporate environment warrants more like a two or a three in our, like a reaction from a manager. Mm. And that would be more like, hey, let me just give you some quick feedback. I observe that this particular message maybe didn't land. And that's that that's like, you know, sounds very supportive, right? But what I was realizing that I was doing is is I was providing the feedback, which is good. You know, you shouldn't underdo feedback and managers very often underdo feedback. Um, but I was consistently at a four or a five when I should have been at a two or a three. And even being on like a little bit further on that grade tour of severity mm -hmm. was something that I realized I was also um, missing pretty frequently. And just being a little more tuned into that, it's hard. And it sounds like, again, I'm holding myself to an impossible standard. But what I realized is that the very best, most consistent managers just really get this right as I said, 99 plus percent of the time. Hmm. And also just lowering the stakes Yeah, for feedback. Hey, you, I'm Andrew Seaman. Do you want a new job or do you want to move forward in your career? Well, you should listen to my weekly show called Get Hired with Andrew Seaman. We talk about it all and it's waiting for you. Yes, you, wherever you get your podcasts. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors. I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today.
come from? The intensity and um, the high stakes approach, it sounds like you're describing. Is that something that is from your background, your childhood, your training? I think one is that in a, in a corporate environment, you're constantly having to kind of reprove or reinvent yourself to show that you're adding value. You really can't rest on your laurels. You can't sort of assume that what you delivered in the previous cycle is going to carry you forward. Mm -hmm. And to be able to kind of manage that instinct, manage that urge is a real challenge for me as a leader. And you know, what's the root cause of that? I think it's a handful of things. Wanting to just hold myself to a high standard, wanting to consistently perform um, and, 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 and things like that. So I think that's, that's part of it. I think if I look back at, if I go back further, um, you know, I referenced sort of a bit of a feeling of imposter syndrome and, and I'm, and I'm not trying to water down that phrase at all, because I, I absolutely think that there are you know, various severities of, of that feeling. And, um, but for me, uh, no one things. owns that feeling, by the way. I, and and the the bigger the bigger the room that you're in, the more people are going to feel imposter syndrome. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Wonderful. Yeah. Or the fancier so, the room, I should say, not spatially bigger. Yeah, and, and so I'll very often be in interactions. You know, I went to a great college. I went to UC Davis. Uh, very proud that I went there. It was not easy to get in, but very often when I'm in a place like Google, I'm in a room with uh, somebody who went to Harvard, someone who went to uh, Stanford, et cetera. And, and, and that's just mm -hmm. very often the norm of the interactions I'm in. There are of course many exceptions to that. Um, uh, but, but I, but I, I sometimes will have a feeling like I have to sort of constantly, uh, sort of prove myself and, and not because people are like peering at my resume on LinkedIn, let's say during the meeting, but when you sort of start out your career and then you get into tech and you begin to observe sort of these formal and informal networks, and a lot of them are based on sort of these prestige-oriented experiences that I just simply didn't have, then I think you sort of develop a bit of a, a chip on your shoulder as a result. And, and, and many very, very successful people sort of have that as a driver for them. Um, but keeping that in balance is extraordinarily challenging. So it's like one of these classic things that what might make me successful is sort of that sense of urgency and that and that sort of drive to to deliver. But at the same time, it's also what has absolutely gotten me into trouble on many, many occasions. And and part of my motivation for 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 doing this is actually just wanting to be very open with you know people I've worked with or um, or or other managers who might be struggling with similar things. And, and you really have to go through a pretty thorough sort of reinvention process um, mm -hmm. where some people who might be listening to this, who know me might be like, this doesn't even sound like Danny. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, one of the things I've thought a lot about is that to sort of go through this process and this transformation process as a leader, you really have to unlearn almost entirely a lot of these behaviors. And then, so people will start to look at you and say things like, have you lost your edge? Do you still have the fire in your belly? But it's just basically a full and non-shortcuttable sort of transformation process to go from being a manager who, a leader who really cannot manage that energy and cannot manage those, those urges to being someone who can channel them effectively and, and to sort of your point earlier, kind of the good energy or, or, or being able to sort of channel that effectively. I want to ask a question that I can imagine so many people listening are just 
first of all, just nodding their heads, you know, it's like the ambition and the sense of what drives you to keep proving yourself is what gets you where you need to be, but it can make you such a nightmare to yourself and a lot of people around you. Like, how do you solve for that question? I mean, it sounds like that is the work that you're doing right now is how do I keep reinventing myself and innovating in this very competitive environment while not acting it out on those around me? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that the general trend of innovative companies towards valuing transparency and and valuing candor from leaders will help leaders succeed along this continuum. And increasingly, I've become comfortable just sort of being quite open with these challenges, not unlike somebody who is, let's say, managing um, a substance addiction, and they become very open that they're recovering and and sort of being able to bring people into that process, I, I, I felt like has helped me because it also it has invited other people, some people on my team, sometimes it's peers to I want to show them that I'm approachable for this feedback and that that they can approach me and say, hey, listen, I, I think you didn't quite get this right. Or um, some of the feedback I, I received recently is that like, hey, Danny, like, I felt like you almost underdid your feedback there. Like we, we felt like we, we didn't land this and, and you mm-hmm. almost, you know, didn't necessarily hold us accountable. Can you, can you explain? And, and in that situation, I might said, yeah, you know, maybe I should have come in at a four, but I was actually more at a three or a two. And, <laughs> and so I think bringing people into that process and really leading with transparency, leading with candor, I would say that innovative corporate environments are supportive of that now. It's much, I think, better understood. Um, the, the, the other thing I'll say, which I mentioned and I referenced, is you have to become comfortable that people will begin to look at you a little differently. And people may wonder, people you know really well, people you might have worked with very closely, they will wonder, is something missing? Did you Do you still have fire in your belly? Are you still scrappy? Are you still willing to roll up your sleeves? And in my case, the answer is like an emphatic yes, but I'm just in the process of learning how to do it in a more productive way that generates substantially more psychological safety for the people around me. And so I think a little bit about, I have an uncle who who plays banjo and he also does woodworking and he hurt his uh, strumming hand. And what he told me is that he had to completely relearn how to strum on the banjo because he wasn't able to use one of his fingers. And I think I thought about his journey to learn the banjo was a multi-year journey, but the process then of having to relearn it and to relearn how to play in an entirely different way, it actually resonated with me a lot as I think about my leadership journey, which is that it's a complete relearning. And, you know, there, we very often talk about how you need 10,000 hours to become an expert at something. Well, I unquestionably spent 10,000 hours learning a particular way to manage. And mm-hmm. now I've probably done about 10% of that or 1,000 hours to learn how to be a leader in this new way. And so I have a long way to go. But I think that being able to embrace that this is a almost complete transformation and being comfortable that those around you may sort of wonder or question that journey. It's something you're just going to have to become comfortable with. Do you feel like you're becoming less anxious because of the transformation or more or the same? No, I absolutely feel like I'm becoming less anxious as a result. Mm. Sometimes I almost feel like I, I have anxiety about not being anxious enough. 
because <laughs> I, I, found, I find myself sort of being like, I'll get out of an interaction. I'm like, wow, I was really laid back. You know, I have this joke. I had a really good friend in college who was my roommate for a while. And he said to me, he said, Danny, you're many things. You're many things. But laid back is not one of them. Right? And I right. always think of that. And I tell people that sometimes because I think it's really funny. Um, but um, I was going to say that sometimes it freaks me out a little because mm -hmm. the, the manner in which I approached interaction was so, let's say, warm, supportive, predictable, almost to the point of being boring. But I think that obvious leaders mm -hmm. actually are, can be really successful ones. And so it's just a little bit of, of telling myself and also inviting others in to sort of provide that positive reinforcement that you can be an effective leader without being enigmatic, uh, you know, unpredictable and, and, and sort of assuming that your brilliance will paper over your behavior and, and those things, you know, just don't work. So occasionally I, I have anxiety about the journey, but I do think my general urge sort of sort of to act this way has diminished greatly. When you think about this sort of growing interest in the growing sense of empathy, I think, in regard for others, others' mental health, um, what was your own experience growing up with, with mental health and with others' mental health? Yeah, it's a great question, obviously a, a personal one, but I had mental health challenges around me my entire life. My mom's brother, uh, a, a really sweet uh, man, um, was paranoid schizophrenic. He lived with my grandma and every Friday night uh, for Shabbat dinner, we'd go to their house and he lived there and we would play chess together. We'd interact. Uh, we'd listen to music together. Uh, but I knew even from a very young age that, um, that, that he, he, was, he was struggling uh, with this diagnosis. Um, as I grew up, my dad, who passed away uh, eight years ago, actually this week, um, struggled with, um, he was manic depressive and, 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 and struggled with, um, bipolar episodes. And he was the most gentle, sweetest person. Um, but, but was, you know, you know, also a bit unpredictable. And so sometimes I think about sort of the quite unconventional male role models that I had in my life, people who were extraordinarily well-meaning and really didn't have a mean bone in their body, but were also not sort of conventionally, uh, consistent and 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 certainly didn't sort of occupy the sort of um, you know you know sort of male fatherly stereotype mm -hmm. that we that we have in society of of sort of someone who you know I I could sort of uh, you know almost holistically emulate I, I didn't have that kind of role model but I don't have any ill will towards my my mom or my dad like in, in fact it's really the opposite like I I now am able to kind of understand a little bit more about you know, the, the nature of that relationship, how, how it affected me. Um, I think what's interesting though, about having that sort of challenge so closely in my nuclear family is that mm -hmm. I think for a very long time, I lacked empathy for milder forms of mental health challenges. And so for example, if really? someone was sort of dealing, yeah, someone was sort of dealing with a small hardship, it, like for example, let's say that um, even in the context of a workplace, if, if someone missed a deal or if they, uh, sort of had a lackluster performance review and, and they would come to me and they'd be upset about it. I think that I didn't have as much empathy because I, I had, I, I dealt with sort of more extreme versions of it growing up right. and sort of, like, I'll in show some you cases, a real my problem here. Yeah, exactly. It's like my perspective actually didn't help here. Cause you think that like perspective would breed wisdom. It would, it would, it would allow me to sort of consistently operate with empathy but I think I only had empathy really for the extremes. 
And, yeah. and I think that in a corporate environment, like it wasn't like a totally questionable value, but it was not the right instinct. And, and so it's like one of these things that I can kind of explain and understand and rationalize, but in hindsight, it, it was, it was probably leading to some, you know, kind of, you know, non-productive behaviors. What relationship do you think growing up around such an extreme, I mean, a father with bipolar disorder takes a toll. What, what relationship did it, how did that affect your own ambition and your own anxiety to achieve? I'm curious. I, you know, I really, I really love my dad and I, and I really did admire him in so many ways. He was very gentle. He was very forgiving. Um, he was extremely loyal, uh, to, to his family. Um, I think at the same time, knowing that his, his, you know, diagnosis sort of was an impediment to certain opportunities, certain relationships, uh, certainly probably some, some professional opportunities and things like that. It, it probably gave me sort of a greater sense of urgency to, you know, sort of, let's say, actualize my own potential. Um, and, and to, and to kind of be in some ways sort of, you know, peerless and, and, um, and not maybe as consistently enough as, as I've sort of alluded to sort of operate with empathy, operate with empathy or sort of lead with vulnerability, lead with candor. Um, and, and, and so it, it ends up kind of creating a bit of like a, a reverse perspective that I alluded to both sort of on my own behavior, which is like, maybe I should use the fact that I have closer to full mental faculties um, and, and to, and to lead with empathy and to, and to be more approachable rather than using those faculties to sort of become some sort of business super athlete. And, and I think that maybe too often I would orient toward the latter versus the former. And that's possible. I don't think it was like the soul and driving motivation, but I think it's somehow mixed up in sort of the crazy cocktail that we all are as human beings. It, I think if you if you grow up with any kind of um, sort of headwind or any any sort of challenge, it could be being in an underprivileged home, or, or you know, it could be um, uh, certainly being an underrepresented minority. As we've come to understand the challenges of being an underrepresented minority in the workplace, I think that it ends up creating some kind of motivation. And so then, for me, mm-hmm. if I could see that that my dad was, let's say, challenged to. Um, sort of, you know, realize his own, you know, full potential because of some of the challenges he had, then I think as his son, I would be motivated to, to use the capabilities I have, sort of the lack of impediments and realize my full potential. And so the manifestation of that could be very positive, very productive, sort of, you know, acting as a positive role model, being very approachable, being a, a consistent manager, or it could motivate you to sort of try to become sort of like an outsized presence or an outsized success and do it on like an almost overly accelerated time frame because you're putting pressure on yourself to realize your own full potential. And so I use this sort of ideal of like this sort of business super athlete, which is like striving to be something almost like this impossible sort of standard and then and then being less mindful along the way of sort of the the kind of secondary behaviors that might sort of stem as a result of that. Um, and this is the things I'm still processing myself, but I, I do think some of these are, are connected. And like, if I were to give myself my, from maybe 15 years ago, a bit of advice, it would be, you should realize your potential and you should process your experience with your family as a, as a motivator, 
but you should also feel like you can channel that energy a little bit more effectively, maybe on, on a day in day out basis. And, and I think that's maybe a bit of the advice, not only I give to myself, but others out there who are kind of thinking about what do I do with this energy? What do I do with this ambitious energy? What do I do with this anxious behavior? And just thinking about the, the really effective ways to channel that. Okay. So last question, what's in your toolkit for keeping up this practice, for growing the empathy, for being consistent? I'd love to hear what you're practicing. Um, yeah, it's a great question. I think as I approach the new year, there, there are three things I'm thinking about. One is I'm trying to very consciously empower the leaders in my team to step up and to, and to play bigger leadership roles. I'm trying to consciously um, help them sort of operate out of my shadow. I'm trying to lead more from the back rather than the front. So that's one. And, and I check in with these leaders on a near daily basis and saying, how is this going? Did it happen too quickly? Is there, is there more I can do to support you? And, and it's almost a daily dialogue with them about the evolution of this. So that's number one. The second is that I'm really trying to consciously um, unfold or open up sort of how I would approach things. So in, in treating, let's say, things that might have been a, like an advantage for me in the corporate environment, not as some sort of trade secret, but as like a best practice. Mm. And so I'm trying to say, hey, here's kind of how I would have approached it. Or here's here's kind of like where you can kind of go in in, in with this meeting and 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 just trying to like have no idea, no concept of like Danny's secret sauce. Like I just I don't value that at all. I might have valued that a little bit before, um, but I, I'm really trying to kind of open that up more. And the third thing is, and I kind of alluded to this, is I'm trying to write more. Uh, be more open, bring more people along on this journey. But it, I am a little uncomfortable about it. Um, but but I think it's the right thing to do because I want to just be very open and 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 very open in my journey. And then you know my it, it, my hope is that it does inspire also a couple other people um, to to evaluate their approach and to evaluate how they uh, utilize their energy. But then my my hope also is that if it does reach some of the people I work with, if they kind of listen to this, like. Yeah, you know what? I I I have observed this, and 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 I can be involved in Danny's journey. I can involve him in mine. I think that would be really exciting. I think so too, and I am grateful that you shared. And I do not see a vulnerability hangover in your future. I think that most people um, who certainly gotten to a level you have can relate to a lot of what you've said. So thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That's it for today's show. Throughout the season, I want to hear from you. On an upcoming episode, we're going to look at what it's like to negotiate when you have anxiety. I'd love to hear your stories of negotiations or give me your questions about mental health and negotiation with a voice memo or a video and send it to anxiousachievermail at gmail.com. That's anxiousachievermail, all one word, at gmail.com. We'd love to feature stories on the show. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends, follow us, and leave a review. You can also tweet me at AM or find me on LinkedIn where you can follow, message, and subscribe to my LinkedIn newsletter for more from the Anxious Achiever world. If you message me on LinkedIn, I'll always get back to you. Thanks for listening.